result of your practice so far, where you tend to get heedless or where you, what, what kind of mental states or obsessions or that, that you're experiencing as being quiet, having uh, the noble silence and, and not having, and having to uh, just, uh, the time to, say, practice without a lot of pressure on you. I haven't put any pressure on you to, to do anything. I'm not taking roll call or checking up on you at all. You could spend all day just sleeping if you want. It's crashed out. In sleep in your rooms or whatever. It's, it's, but then what I want you to do is reflect on the result of whatever you've done. So that you can learn from this experience about what the way life is, what happens, what we do, what effect what we do affects us. So that this is uh, developing the uh, the ability to contemplate the results of what you've done, say in this past week. What is it like? What is the result of it? For those of you who've had to take more active role, like Venerable Nyana Dasi having to repair the boilers all the time, <laughs> and uh, Sister Jodhika having to deal with office work, and uh, so forth, uh, different, that also reflect on the result of that, of what, having to, what, you know, the idea of retreats and, and then having to, say, do something that is uh, being quite worldly, really, being caught up with things that have to be done, messages that have to be given, things that have to be repaired. Not to, not to criticize, just to note what the idea of retreat we can, I, I want to go on retreat, and then we, when we find ourselves having to do things, we we can feel very put out or annoyed that we can't do things, have a retreat the way we would like to have a retreat. Or maybe you feel relieved that you, you'd rather be doing something than sitting, uh, formal practice or walking meditation. The, the important thing to what I'm trying to convey to you on this retreat is that you are now fully responsible adult human beings who must take full responsibility for your life here. It's, uh, it's, it's not a, a training camp for teenagers, adolescents, juvenile delinquents, <coughs> uh, dope addicts or anything else. This is, this. by the time you're, you're into the Sangha, is a as a monk or a nun, then it's it's not for me, not to me, to kind of pressure you or to look after you in the sense of checking up on you or pushing you along. Sometimes it's easier if you have a really strict teacher who is always kind of on you to keep practicing and doing this, doing that, telling you what to do. 
But that also binds us to uh, a sense of, of dependency and need for external forces to, to pressure, to put the pressure on us, to, to be able to do anything. And, I, and, and you need to see that if you, if you are dependent upon external forces on conditions still very much to practice, that means that you, you need to know that, what, what kind of things you depend on in order to maybe sit in meditation. What happens when you go back to your room at night? How does that affect your mind as a the idea of end of the day, after the evening talk, you go back to your room. What happens to you? Do you do you what what kind of things go through your mind? What kind of of uh, conditions do you experience? Like just going entering your room to notice the way it is. I'm not saying you any advise you what you should do or how you should feel. Just to note, to observe how things affect your mind, what you're familiar with, what you, what we consider my room, how that affects my mind, or end of the day, time to go to sleep, or I have to get up at four in the morning, or these kind, these kind of attitudes, uh, we oftentimes run on. Our lives are, are conditioned very much by schedules, uh, con- perceptions of time, I've got to get to bed because I have to get up at four in the morning. I'll be an absolute wreck at the morning chatting if I don't get my five hours, six hours sleep. And these kind of panicky feelings uh, can we can we can be very much believing in them and uh, following them. The sense of having to do something, like, like the the retreat. There's always a sense when you when you give something a name like retreat. There's, it arouses a, uh, an attitude of that there's something we have to do. <coughs> that a retreat is a time to really do something. Now, this kind of compulsive feeling of that we should be doing something. That can be observed because that is that if never recognized, never noticed, we we end up just being caught in compulsive uh, meditation habits. We just become compulsive meditators and guilt-ridden when we don't meditate uh, according to the standard that we've set for ourselves. Because whatever you create, whatever standards you you uh, you adhere to if you don't know how to use <coughs> use standards if standards are still very much coming from your ignorant mind and your ideals then standards tend to we're always feeling guilty we're always feeling inadequate because we seldom can live up to the standard the high standard that we can imagine we should we should be able to live up to
notice the like the curiosity about the Gulf crisis. What's happening in the Gulf crisis? It's only what six days away. Zero hour. The Sala over there. What are they doing over there? Or as workmen? What are they going to do to the Sala? Kind of curiosity. And one thing, I beg you, please don't pay any attention to the Sala. Ignore it totally. Don't even go in it. And for everything, don't bother the workmen. I said yesterday, a constant stream of people asking them what they were going to do. This is this is this is a, a present to you from me. I'm taking full responsibility for the sala, <laughs> and it's my present. It's you don't have to do it this time. You don't have to spend all your time trying to order equipment and get everything done and and. Uh, be responsible for it. It's a, we now have, this is one of the few projects where we can just let somebody else do it. So, so look at it as a, as a gift. Uh, somebody donated some money for this and this is an opportunity just because I got so, by the time, by this time I've been looking at the style and so, so a kind of um, weary of the tawdriness of our sala that I figured out exactly what I wanted to do. That, so I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. With some helpful advice from Alina and Lawrence has been very cooperative. Sister Jojica has helped and, and then uh, Bill and Tony, and uh, and that's enough. Otherwise, you get too many advisors, you go crazy. And anyway, most of them are willing to do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so, what it comes out like, if it's horrible, if you can say, Ajahn Tomato, it's his fault, and it's not anyone else's. <clears throat> So forget about the sala and just let it, let it just if any curiosity arises, notice that, that one wants to know what's happening. The, Try to keep your mind very much within the. Uh, trying to keep it. If you're going to think, or you're going to, uh, if you want to think, or you want to use that function of mind, then think word Buddha all the time, with your mala beads or whatever, Bhutto or Buddha, uh, Dhamma Sangha. Think words that like that uh, rather than than uh, say just going around in circles with your own kind of obsessive thoughts and worries and problems 
this they, because they they think of the word Buddha, and if you if you keep thinking it over and over again, quite intentionally, not so it becomes a just a a kind of a habit with, with where you just kind of hap, uh, absent-mindedly are thinking it, but it's intentional because it is a very powerful word, and it is. It is our refuge to know, to see clearly, to be free from delusion. So if you want to think, then think like that. Think Buddha. Uh, use uh, the, the breath, the sound of silence, these as reference points. Always go to. Uh, to to establish this sense of here and now, because the the thinking mind and the worldly problems will always take us on flights outside everywhere all over the planet and the universe if you if you if you want so we're the the important thing is to learn how to bring your attention to be here and now Santitiko akaliko. One of the the uh, rather distressing problems that the world is going through right now is, of course, the, in the Persian Gulf. And this is a seemingly kind of unsolvable problem at this time. The uh, mentality of humanity seems to be very much uh, a very stubborn, determined uh, kind of... Uh, Mentality that only sees uh, possibilities through uh, threatening and through displays of power. So that there are about 600,000 troops and within the United States, the British, and the the U- UN forces, and there are about 450,000 Iraqi troops on the other side. And uh, so that the, the sense of, uh, you know, the, the, today they're having talks in Geneva, the, Mr. Baker and the Iraqi foreign minister, but it doesn't seem likely that, they, that these two people can talk to each other uh, and, and agree on any other solution other uh, than just uh, brute force this is this is a this is the result of so many things that have happened over the past hundred years isn't it and we this is this is the type of mind most human beings have isn't it just notice in yourself how you your own tendencies towards Annihilation of trying to use power and to to control or to dominate even in within yourself anything that that you don't agree with or don't like even within yourself tendency to want to go to war with it to to uh, massacre it. So it starts very much in the human mind. We aren't exempt from that type of mental activity. I can certainly 
understand it. I have no problem understanding President Bush. Saddam Hussein, I find, um, a real scoundrel. I'm, I've never been a real scoundrel, so I don't understand real scoundrels very well. But I can understand President Bush fairly well. I can, I can uh, empathize with, with what he must be going through, having to, to uh, make decisions and uh, to, to kind of appeal, uh, having being a president of a democratic country and having to, to be under so many pressures and having these principles that you aren't going to let a scoundrel get away with doing a dirty deed. And I have a very strong uh, uh, feelings of righteous indignation myself. I can be really heavy number myself when it comes to things, to, to roaring with indignation and, on, and unfairnesses and people or things that happen that are just done out of mean-heartedness and stupidity. And I want to just punch him in the nose. I just want to... <laughs> hammer them. They should really be punished and, and, and uh, you know, really punished. Show that you're not going, you can't do that. You're just not going to be allowed to act like that in my monastery. I certainly have feelings like that. And I can see why, you know, this idea of in uh, Saddam Hussein, who is a scoundrel, I mean, there's not much good you can say about him. Uh, even, you know, of course the Western press has never been, hasn't been flattering since, uh, since he uh, invaded Kuwait, but he has really been quite a rotten egg, um, both to his own people and to, you know, Destroy, taking over another country and and uh, committing or responsible for the destruction and atrocities, and then threatening and then assuming roles like being a self-righteous prig, like saying, "I'm not. I I promise to leave Kuwait if you agree to talk about the Palestinians and the Syrians," and making himself to be some kind of kind of messiah or hero for the Arab world, when he's, you know, just using, when he's been responsible for destroying a country and uh, murdering thousands and thousands of people. And then having the, the nerve to come forth like a savior of the Arab world. And there's so many disgusting, despicable things that one has to endure, that one can't help uh, but kind of empathize with President Bush's uh, uh, feeling of total revulsion and determination to to get rid of this dastardly creature. So I've been painting this picture this evening of what it's like to feel <coughs> that this guy has to be set straight. You can't let somebody like this loose. You can't let him get away with it, can we? We've got to show him. In the process, we can blow up so many, kill so many more <laughs> prospects of a war in, uh, in the Gulf is, is one of the most 
frightening things I can think of. So we can see the, these tendencies in ourselves. But we all know from our own experience of meditation, don't we, that that my indulging in those feelings of indignation, being high principled and, and hating and, and getting irate and indignant and angry over the meanness and and uh, rottenness of anything or within within our own minds or within even just little things, just little things in a community we can become quite self-righteous about them. But what does that do when we, when we follow that feeling? We tend to go over the top, don't we? We tend to, to oftentimes miss what the real cause of the problem is. It's easy to blame Saddam Hussein. Somebody like him is a is a, is a is a culprit that uh, one can't say very much can't can't give anything really good about him, so he's an easy scapegoat. Someone, I mean, a villain that is that is very easy to hate. Don't have any problems hating him. He deserves to be hated. But we also recognize that, that, that so many thousands and even millions of people are going to get brutalized and even slaughtered over just the whims and attitudes of a few people. That humanity, we, one can just conscript young men, young women into a military outfit and send them out into the battlefields. And we know that within ourselves, if we, just the result of following these indignant tendencies, we just, even if we can, even if I can, uh, say if you do something stupid and I get angry and attack you and call you all kinds of names and rage at you, even if I manage to totally humiliate and conquer you, if I should even be able to do that, what is the result? Is that I have, there's something that really bad has taken place. Within me there's, a, there's some really sense of having done something very bad. And then even if I've managed to put you in your place and totally humiliate you and put you down in front in the eyes of the whole world, is that is that a good thing? Is that is that a beautiful thing? Is that real Dhamma? Is that wisdom? Does one get real joy out of out of totally humiliating and and uh, conquering somebody else? I, I don't feel that way. Sometimes I feel like doing it. But the result of acting on those impulses is always a sense of guilt and grief. You know. 
because it's not. It, 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 it's, it's coming from avicca, panjaya sankara. It's the age-old problem we all have, our ignorance, selfishness. So you get in the Gulf now, they, they, you know, one form of ignorance uh, fighting another form of ignorance. Can we, can we really take sides? Because I don't hear any real wisdom, anything wise being said in regards to this particular problem. The voices of wisdom, there aren't any on, on uh, that. There isn't, say, on the on the in the realm of people who speak out publicly uh, about this type of situation. Wisdom might sound like, like wimpishness. Like there is a certain, certain element in America and in Europe that feels that, that they shouldn't, that, that this kind of aggressive, threatening type of, of uh, activities should stop, that we should just use uh, economic pressure, sanctions and so forth, and, and to try to, to control it through that. But then to many people that sounds like you're, you're, you're backing out, you're doing it because you're frightened, you're too chicken, too, too much of a wimp, weakling, to, to really stand up to this terrible person. And that really, we're easily intimidated, aren't we? How many of you have been intimidated on that level? You, you're too weak, you're weakling because you won't stand up to somebody or being able to just tell somebody off and talk back and put somebody in their place is a kind of strength shows that you're not, you're not frightened by people and you can stand up for yourself. But the more we realize how to reflect and contemplate things, then we, we find ourselves much more open and to possible ways of solving problems that we can't possibly see when we've taken a fixed, rigid position on an issue. And if one is, if one is committed to, to a side already, then it's very difficult to see any other way to do it. If you're committed to the right, it's, it's very hard to see any other possibilities because the human mind, when, we, when we're attached to a view, we can't see uh, around the view we're attached to. The view that we're attached to affects everything. It's how we see things through a glass darkly or through a distortion through a flaw, through a position. It's like the blind man or the person looking at an elephant from one angle and, uh, and argues that the elephant is one way only. The reflective mind then is, is non-attached and open to looking at things, reflecting on things from different perspectives then there's possibility for solving problems like this. 
the Palestinian problem, the Syrian problem, the Israeli problem, the Middle East, all of these, these are, if we, if we have a, a fixed position taking sides, then we can't see any other possibility except through a very uh, rigid pattern of thought and activities that we that we subscribe to and yet the human being is quite capable of having a very malleable flexible mind like the Buddha mind the Buddha mind is a is a very flexible it's it, open, sensitive, receptive, not fixed, not bound by anything. So that's what where our goal is in our realization of truth is to realize that that perfection that we can all uh, realize through opening our heart, our mind to Dhamma, to the way things are rather than uh, interpreting life from a particular position which is most of you interpret everything from the position of yourself I am so we become egocentric our ego is the center of the universe now contemplate this as we are the center of the world we live in aren't we I, not that I want to be the center of the world, it's just that that's the way it is. As far as uh, it's a result of being born, that I have to experience my whole lifetime from here. So, so there is this, this sense of being the center of everything. On a perception of yourself, you think you don't think of yourself as the center, do you? You think of you, you think of yourself as a member of a society, as one person in a population. But yet, your experience of life is always going to be the the center of of everything, because that's just the way it is. That's the result of being born and and being sensitive and conscious that you can't experience <coughs> life from where I'm sitting right now, can you? You have to experience from where you are. And yet in the room you might think Ajahn Sumedho's in the center because that's the convention, isn't it? Ajahn Sumedho's the center now. He's, he's in the center. But actually, you are in the center as an experience. Huh? So that's just the way it is. That's, then, then when, if we if we don't understand that, then we uh, and and what an ego is, and how conditioned we are, and what dunha and ubadana desire and grasping really are, then then we just end up feeling confused and despairing about our lives because it just seems to be a terribly confusing situation. It, we, we believe in one thing but yet our experience of life is not according to what we believe in. We're conditioned to perceive the world in various ways through culture and class, race, education, all that. And 
we're conditioned to perceive things and perceive ourselves in certain ways, but the, and yet we experience things in a, in a different way. Like you might think of yourself as a nobody. I mean, I don't think any of you think yourself as center of the universe. Well, that's just a reflection for you. You probably think of yourself as just a nobody. Most of you, I'm just, oh my, nobody. Just another, you know, one of the 60,000 in Britain? 60 million in Britain? Just another body here. Uh, and, and one thinks of oneself as, uh, you know, as just not, not being anything but part of a mass. That's the perception, isn't it? That's the way it seems on the conventional level of, of one being and, and, uh, and 60 million beings in Britain. And yet, as an experience of life, you don't experience life through 60 million people, do you? You experience life through this one. You experience sensation and feeling through this, through this formation here. This is, this is where your center is. And if you don't realize that, then you're, then you're always working on this level of perceiving the world in a certain way and experiencing it in another. And of course, what what is the result? We're just feeling terribly confused by the whole mess. Because it just doesn't make sense. <coughs> you can only feel that maybe something's wrong with you, or that you're, you're something, that you're a bit cracked, or a bit off. I think we've all had those fears. I, mean, I used to think I was, uh, I was cracked. Something something wasn't quite right about myself from early childhood. I didn't fit in. I didn't didn't seem to fit into anything properly. There's something <coughs> always a bit off in me. I thought everybody else was normal. When I looked at the other little boys in school, I said, they're all normal. They're normal boys. I'm not normal. Something's, something's off in me. And I didn't, because I couldn't feel it, those little boys, that they, they might feel the same way, because this is something we never talked about. You know, I didn't even think of it in the in kind of in conscious way. It was a more of a feeling. Finding out later that many of what I thought were normal boys were going through incredible problems. Uh, difficulties, broken families, and all kinds of, of, of uh, feelings of being unloved and whatnot, and yet one wasn't aware of that in the in the schoolyard. One one was only aware of one's own feeling. So this is the this is why we reflect on the center, not as being the center of the universe, like one is God and the kind of the, the axis mundi, but as a, an experience uh, uh, experiencing life uh, in this conscious form, we can only experience it 
from this. So this is for as in regards to the rest of the universal system that we're a part of. We we are the center of it because this is this is where we experience it. You don't have to look for the Bodhi tree or the Axis Mundi or anything like this in a in a place because you already have it. You are the Bodhi tree. You are the center of the universe. But don't start attaching to those perceptions. But it is a it is an important contemplation so you know that it's here and now that you that you awaken to truth. It's not in India. It's not in Thailand. Or it's not next year. Or it's not in the next lifetime. Those are all perceptions in the here and now. And India is a perception uh, that, uh, that we can have right now. And Thailand, and next year, and next lifetime. These are perceptions of the mind. Ideas that we have. So from this humble center that we that we find ourselves in this position, we we must learn about Dhamma. We realize Dhamma from the way it is. Even if the way it is is, is nothing other than just the thoughts and feelings that you ha- are having. Whether they're intelligent or stupid or or high or low or important or trivial or <coughs> Uh, irrational or rational, sensible or nonsense, uh, feelings of pleasure and pain, uh, being sick or healthy. These are these these are not these are conditions that we witness and observe as all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. The gulf crisis, then, is a result of ignorance, not understanding Dhamma. Then we have gulf crises, crises, don't we? Have you ever had a gulf crisis in yourself? World wars, uh, all of these things are, they start in, in the mind of of individual beings. And then of course the result is that we infect each other with our ignorance. And then it's like AIDS or leprosy or something, we infect each other through intercourse. Because we 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 tend to uh, we we live with each other. We we are having intercourse with each other all the time. There's this there's things going on between us, vibrations, feelings, uh, attitudes that that are that we can't help but uh, experience. It's the way somebody looks at you affects you. You see somebody looking at you with a happy face or somebody looking at you with an angry face. Uh, 
the weather effects. We can we can be elated or depressed by just the the sun shining or the or the cold rain. In Britain, I really in, I noticed a lot of how in Britain one uh, because of the British climate. Uh, there's this sense of wanting, wanting sunshine, and when when the sun appears, there's this sense of sundown, and then 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 you think, oh, but it'll go away in the next minute. There's a kind of negative attitude about British weather that uh, that there's no sunshine; it's always rainy and grey. But actual experience of British weather hasn't been like that. When I remember back over 14 years in this country, my, my, some of my memories are the most beautiful days of my life, weather-wise. Perfect temperatures, neither hot nor cold, green hills, <coughs> beautiful flowers, and lovely places to be. Not, not a a memory of just grey skies. But now, even grey skies I look at, and I, I really have taken a great liking to grey skies. The other morning, I was standing, evening, last evening, I was standing over there by, uh, near the forest, the eight-acre woodland. And it was raining, and uh, everything was, is getting dark, you know, the, the, all the woods were turning into kind of black blotches and then the grey clouds in the sky across the, uh, looking across the Leighton Buzzard Road, the other side, to those hills. One could only feel a sense of, of, of great beauty there. It, it, was, it wasn't, I mean, if one had a fixed view of beauty as being sunny and bright and warm and then one would have only been critical of what one was seeing or experiencing. But if the one if there was was nothing to hold on to, no position to take, no preference to have, then one discovers beauty in most unlikely places. One realizes beauty as a, as uh, in the here and now rather than Comparing something here and now with some other ideal of with some ideal of beauty, I used to notice having traveled a lot. I would always compare one place with another. I'd be in uh, Thailand, I think, uh, and we'd see some scene in Thailand. I think, oh, this reminds me of California. Or when I came to England, I'd, I think, oh. Uh, Southern England reminds me of Washington State, or, or going to uh, uh, Provence in south of France. This is just like Southern California. Or <laughs> and I think, why do I keep saying things, stupid things like this? <laughs> why do I have to say it's one place is like something? I'll go to California and say, this is just like Southern France. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I keep saying these kind of useless things, comparing one place with another? And uh, is this the way the mind, oh, restless minds, always wanting to 
to make comments and and, uh, and, it, and therefore if one is is uh, comparing and preferring or trying then uh, then uh, there's something you're missing because each place is only what it is unique and we, there's no need one can let go of the tendency to have to perceive it as something or like something else being on the winter's retreat now you have uh, I've tried many different uh, experiments remember several years ago there I had you all getting up at three in the morning and going to bed eleven at night and and uh, it was a near disaster <laughs> miserable the really tough one managing to get like that like the kind of I can do it and then a lot of everybody's falling over sick and and the garakas were running off to the farm shop buying cheese. And <laughs> Everybody be sitting there falling asleep, you know, making bags under their eyes. And uh, is this is this uh, is this what we're supposed to be doing? <laughs> It's still uh, the result of having been in boot camp in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a hangover from the idea of Thailand, where the idea of Toraman. Toraman is translated in, by most of us, we translate Toraman as torture. Because Toraman is a, kind, of, kind of sounds like torture. But actually Toraman... <laughs> doesn't mean torture, it means to be patient with things, endurance, <laughs> enduring. <laughs> but there's this, this is one of the dangers of, of uh, translations is that one, one tends to translate other languages very much uh, from one's own beliefs and opinions. So Toraman became torture. The idea is that Ajahn Chah the idea was to Toraman us, and that's and, and oftentimes that seemed like torture. <laughs> so one formed the idea that unless you tortured everybody, <laughs> that they weren't going to ever get enlightened. That your duty was to make everything incredibly difficult and hard, kind of like a marathon, and uh, kind of push them all into enlightenment. But it became apparent that it doesn't work. And besides, it's no fun. Terrible to have to to torture people. I don't like torturing people. Even though I'm, I quite I like I'm. I used to enjoy you know really proving myself, like sitting as long as I can and and uh, sleeping as little and not lying down and fasting and I quite get off on all that on asceticism because I I, uh, I get I get 
quite uh, high on it. You get very high on on uh, self torture. <laughs> and then I contemplated, and I thought, is is uh, and and somebody said, Annoy Thompson uh, said she was down at Chitters at that time, and she said, she said. I would go there in the early morning, they'd all be falling asleep. And uh, she said, all be bobbing up and down and falling asleep. And then Ajahn and I know would get on them and, and then have a terrible time trying to keep <coughs> themselves awake. And she said, they only do that because they never get enough sleep. <laughs> If you let them get enough sleep, they wouldn't do that. I thought, I think she's right. (laughs) 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 I think that might be... Then I remembered uh, my own, like when I first started meditating years ago as a novice in Nongkai, I didn't have any teacher, nobody, just a, a few words from the Tanjaukun, my Upachaya, and then I was left alone in this kuti for months on end, and I found that at first, when I first went into this kuti, this little hut, I was just so tired and, and I just slept for for three or four days. I just slept most of the time, just, and and uh, didn't practice at all. Just slept. And then after I felt really rested, I started practicing. And I noticed that that uh, that when the rested that the mind is more. If you're not just kind of resisting, having to fight against sleepiness and the, these feelings, then. The mind is uh, quite a receptive, reflective mind. Its uh, insights would come quite easily when, when, when I was rested, when I wasn't just fighting off the sense of having to stay awake and, and resist uh, the, the tiredness, sleepiness, and a lot of mental distress. Uh, because Western people are so compulsive by nature that we we tend to just exhaust ourselves with our uh, compulsive tendencies. Where, where, say, in Thailand, the people are not so compulsive. Like in uh, northeast Thailand, the monks are can be quite easygoing. My Ben Rai and and uh, they don't they don't, don't feel they have to do things. They they tend to put things off, procrastination and. It doesn't really matter, my Ben Rai type of attitudes. So Ajahn Chah used to develop this sense of Toramon, you know, really uh, kind of drive them a bit because the the mentality wouldn't w- wasn't so kind of compulsive anyway. It was more kind of easygoing, laid back, uh, where most of us Western people would come with. It, a really hard line, a sense of, I've got to get it, 
and uh, I'm here to practice. And and uh, this uh, this was a very we sometimes we'd feel out of contempt for the time of you know, they don't practice. We practice. We get this sense of arrogance. We arrogant, and they don't practice like we we practice. We're practicing monks, and uh, we're here to realize nibbana. We're not here just to waste our time, kill time, just getting through just or temporary ordinations and <laughs> blah blah blah. So, so that we uh, we this this idea of of uh, Toraman, as oftentimes one interpreted it from the time Forest Monastery, uh, for a Western mind, we would be, we would increase our sense of compulsiveness and guilt and and obsessive tendencies. We needed much more to develop the Mai Bin Rai practice. Doesn't really matter practice be more relaxed and laid back and easy going and you practice here um, develop an easy going attitude a sense of of loving the Dhamma of the practice not to to try to force it and make yourself sit and and uh, be really strict and hard and pushy with yourself uh, as, as, as a com- kind of compulsive thing you have to do in order to feel that you're practicing. It's, imp- it's more important to see those tendencies in yourself, the driving qualities, the, the ambition, the, the arrogance, the obsessiveness that our human, that our minds tend to be conditioned with. This is where Reflection isn't it the way you need to know how you need to know yourself, and only you can do that. Don't go around expecting somebody else to tell you how you should be practicing, because like uh, one of the uh, things in in uh, Thailand, and they have this like the Burmese method, the Mahatisado method is they're always they call it soparom. They always checking your state. Every day you'd go to the teacher and they'd soap a roll, have a, have a little check on you. And this was uh, the, this uh, Burmese method which was, t- which was being used in Thailand. So when monks, people would go to Wat Bapong, they'd say, Ajahn Chah, are you going to soap a roll? Are you going to check my practice for me? He'd say, Check your own practice. Soparomeng. <laughs> and this was uh, this. Now this. At first, I one one felt uh, like one wanted somebody else to do it. But what Nung Po Chan was actually pointing to was that it's only one one being that can know what what our practice is up to we can and that's ourselves what is the result how do you expect a teacher or somebody else to know the result of your practice if you don't know it when you're the center you're the one that experiences it how can you expect someone who's not experiencing your 
feelings or your practice, how are they <coughs> supposed to know? Or you just want advice, somebody to tell you uh, what to do. And we can feel that, as a, uh, wanting the teacher to tell me what to do next. That's, a, that's a, a desire, isn't it? Please tell me what I should do next, teacher. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, so the teacher has to tell me. Uh, I don't know uh, whether I should spend more time <coughs> doing samatha or more time doing vipassana, or whether I should uh, note every single mental state, or whether I should not, or whether I how many hours a day should I be sitting and how many hours a day should I be walking and, and uh, on and on like this one gets caught in doubt in uh, feeling that, that somebody else knows more uh, knows what you should be doing all these things are mental states that we can see as uh, conditions that arise and cease doubt uh, agitation, utacha kukucha. Sloth, torpor, dullness. Uh, greed and anger. We, in practice, we study, we investigate, we know these. We know them, we, we investigate, we examine them. We examine our doubt. We examine doubt. If you examine doubt, you know what doubt is. Should I sit longer or how many hours a day should I practice or what, in what stage am I at? What am I a sotapanna yet? Or have I, they have 16 stages in the Mahasi Sayadaw method before you become a sotapanna. It's hopeless. <laughs> Sixteen stages you have to to realize before you reach the stream. That in itself is a heavy perception, isn't it? It's really the idea that I have to go through these sixteen stages. If you start realizing that that is a perception of the mind, sixteen stages, and sotapanna also. Don't 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 worry about Sotapanna or Arahant, those take care of themselves. But the, the, what you can observe is how much the Bariati Dhamma, or the, the, uh, the actual scriptural teaching, uh, can, uh, can, we can distort it through interpreting it from the ego. So I found very much the like with somebody like Lung Pa Cha that the way he uh, encouraged practice was very much for each for that I had to take that responsibility and I had to learn from my own trials and errors. You investigate, you you study, you examine, you learn from experience, and then this this pattern that I emphasize the the Buddha 
contemplating the Dhamma, that is to be, that is the most important paradigm or pattern to, to use to be the knowing, be that which sees and knows Dhamma rather than be somebody who's trying to attain enlightenment. It's a totally different uh, attitude, isn't it? It's being mindful, aware of the way it is, rather than being somebody who has to do all kinds of things in order to become enlightened in the future. And that's very complicated, and and there's no hope. That's the samsara, the endless cycles of of samsara. Me, as somebody who has to do something to become enlightened in the future. But when there is refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then the, the ability to see whatever subject to arise in is subject to see things. L- seeing and knowing greed and non-greed, hatred and non-hatred, delusion and non-delusion, self and non-self, <coughs> grasping and non-grasping, desire and non-desire. I offer this for your reflection. <laughs>